Welcome to the Scottish Business Network podcast. So here we go. Actually, it's nice to ask the tree first. We say, can we have some of your sap? You're going to establish a dialogue with the trees, you know. I think she says yes. And uh, straight in. So you should be able to see... The magic oh, yeah. of the sap mm-hmm. flowing. Hello, I'm Fraser Allen. Welcome to the 93rd episode of this series. I've got some very noisy sparrows on my window ledge this afternoon, so you may be able to hear them too. And the sound that you heard before that was uh, myself with my latest guest, Rupert Waits, drilling for birch sap in an East Lothian woodland. Rupert is a really interesting character, a chef and a forager with a deep connection to the Scottish countryside and the co-founder of the Scottish drinks business, Buck and Birch. Buck and Birch is chaired by local landowner and tech entrepreneur George McIntosh, who incidentally was an early guest on this series. And under the inspirational eye of Rupert, and his business partner, Tom Chisholm, the company has developed an amazing range of spirits and liqueurs flavoured with foraged Scottish ingredients such as rose hips, elder, hogseed and, of course, birch. We began our conversation in the Gifford community woodland with a glass of birch sap and Rupert telling me about the wild food diet championed by fellow forager Monica Wilde that he is currently following. Today's harvest. Lovely. It should be a bit sweeter okay. because the uh, the water portion of it's frozen up. But that is well water and tree minerals mm-hmm. filtered through a tree. And for the past week, it's been my breakfast. <laughs> well, I believe you're on quite a special diet at the moment, Rupert. Why don't you tell us about that? I am indeed. Yeah, we're on the um, it's wild food only for the the wild biome project. Um, this is uh, this is what happens when you're. Um, friends with Monica Wild, she'll phone you up and propose these crazy outlandish ideas. And um, as a friend of Monica Wild, I felt compelled to say yes because it's it's kind of practicing what I preach. Um, it's a great time of year for it. There's loads of green stuff. Uh, I'm a little bit overweight. It's uh, it's got to be said, and I saw it as a personal chance to to get a bit healthier um, and really really connect with with the land through the food because I've got no choice now. So you're just collecting all the food yourself. Um, as much as possible. I mean, I think there's a few a few cheats. You're not obviously allowed to take birds' eggs from the wild for quite a while now, and, and rightly so. Um, so we're substituting, you know, if there's a bird nesting season, um, you can substitute in some, some hen's eggs. It's just trying to stay away from any pesticides and things like that. Um, seafood, um, you know, Musselbra, where I live, is, is famous for its mussel beds. I personally wouldn't eat the mussels from there anymore. That's modernity for you. But, um, you know, if you go just up the beach... You go to Clark's Fish Shop and they've got some really good wild equivalent yeah. mussels from, from the Shetland Islands. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think the last time in Britain we would have had a fully wild diet, if ever, there would have been wild pigs, there would have been aurochs, there would have been big cows and fatty beasts floating around. Um, and in the modern world, we've got really lean animals like roe deer, uh, hares, rabbits, pheasants. Um, and these, these are the kind of things you can eat. So fat is a real problem. Um, so what sort of things have you been eating over the, the past few days? An awful lot of venison. 
I've had venison haunch, I've had venison heart, venison liver, venison kidney, venison neck, venison... <laughs> Literally nose to tail. Nose to tail, um, lots of venison fat. I was very kindly given some fat by uh, the guys at Great Glen Charcuterie from their very precious stash, um, which I've rendered down, and that is, it's a really good fat, actually. But if I want to fry anything to add a little bit of extra flavour, for me, it, it's it's in uh, deer tallow. Um, I've also been eating a lot of fish. I've got fish mm. in the freezer, razor clams. I made a lovely wild beast from... Um, prawns and lobsters and squat lobster tails um, the mussels are exceptional I think the mussels you know they don't need anything I would say putting anything in the mussels is, is kind of detracting from them mm -hmm. so I think I'm going to be eating a lot of seaweeds I've got a lot of dried mushrooms I've got a lot of dried seeds and powders and flowers and um, yeah it's 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 really just reorientating the brain to say you need to think a little bit more about what you're going to eat. So have you noticed any impacts on your, your physical health? I mean, definitely. Um, I've lost about a stone since it started, so that's about a kilo a day, um, which has not been missed at all. So I, I just feel lighter. I feel um, I feel more in the flow, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. You know, I just feel like uh, everything's happening and unfolding nicely. Um, I think if I remember to have breakfast... Uh, if I'm doing anything energetic is the one thing because there's no instant energy in the tank. Right. I think I'm I'm really just burning fat now. Mm -hmm. um, so I was at Tilling the other day putting creels out and on the way back it was a real struggle because I hadn't had any breakfast and I just felt um, I felt really really uh, sluggish and that was a lesson. So I now start carrying my uh, my Pemi can in the in the car. So that's my go-to right. snack. And that's literally just dried, dried venison, hazelnuts, uh, deer fat, and dried wild cherries. Well, yeah, <laughs> it's like a sort of uh, old school protein bar. <laughs> yeah, but this is what the uh, the American Indians used to to eat right. when they were on on their travels. Yeah, it's so nutritionally dense, and once you've made it, it lasts forever. Well. It's just kind of no nonsense on the go food. Yeah. So how, where did this all start, Rupert? First of all, I'm mean, going right back. Where did you where did you grow up? What was family life like, and so on? I mean, I was born in uh, West Grantham Terrace in Edinburgh, um, which I always think of as train spotting country. <laughs> it's when I read train spotting that I remember saying to my mother, "Thanks for moving us out of there," you know. Um, and my parents moved us. Uh, they decided to go and live the good life, if you like, in in the Highlands, Northwest Highlands. So my father got a job in uh, in a school in Malig. And we, we lived there on, on the pier, more or less. Um, so every day was kind of an adventure at the pier. And as I grew up, it was, we, you know, we grew up in Malig. We grew up on the Isle of Cana. Uh, we grew up in a place called Balmacara, Sutherland. Uh, I went to school in Skye. And, and we were encouraged, you know, old school, go out all day. Don't come back till dinner time. So if you come back before dinner time, you're getting kicked out again. <laughs> if you come back after dinner time, you're getting a clout, you know. And we just we just adventured, you know. We we would find um, all sorts of amazing things. And you know, my parents were were quite into making wines, and and uh, you know, we always had deer, we always had rabbits. Um, just the whole idea of, of of living with the land. I think I took it for granted, oh. and it wasn't really till. So I became a chef in the city um, and locked myself in a box away from mm -hmm. nature that I suddenly realised it was a thing, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I had a very idyllic uh, and largely feral childhood. Right. Uh, very much <laughs> so. So what led you to become a chef? Were you really into food from a, a, an early age? 
Cause... I, I think so. I mean, an ex-girlfriend of mine said to me once, you know, when I was about 17, that really, if you're going to succeed in life, you need to find the things you enjoy doing and try and make a living at them. And I sat down for a whole day, um, really just sort of scouring my brain like a big Rolodex, thinking that and putting it through a test. And I came up with, um, I enjoyed cooking, I really enjoyed plants, uh, and I really enjoyed like art at the time. Uh, and then I thought, well, I'll, I'll use my younger years, which is the most energetic, to be a chef. And then I'll move into plants, and then in my older age, I'll, I'll become a, an artist or something, do something oh, creative, right. <laughs> you know. But the, the, the three really mix very well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I did try first to become a gardener, but one thing led to another. Um, and I was taken from, from Hampshire back to Scotland. Um, I moved to Edinburgh, and it just seemed, you know, with no driving licence, lots and lots of restaurants about. It was just the easiest thing to fall into. I mean, my first job had been as a kitchen porter when I was 14. Right. So I kind of understood kitchen culture. Um, and I just really fell in love with it. You know, I was very, very quiet, very shy as a boy. Uh, and, you know, busy, busy brasserie kitchens in Edinburgh. Really shake oh, yeah. that out of you pretty quickly. <laughs> so and what it, did you find that experience like then, learning learning how to cook in these places? I mean, the first three months, uh, I worked in a place on uh, Hanover Street, and it was tough. You know, I have to say it was five five days back to back of 16 hour shifts um, going from being on the dole um, you know I do remember somebody asking me how I was and I was just sort of uh, nearly in tears and I was fine but it was it was tough I have to say yeah but ultimately extremely rewarding yeah mm -hmm. but yeah I mean I, I always look back on these uh, times with kind of um, a mix of uh, you know I mean people think I'm crazy when I tell them some of the stories but I see it as a real uh, you know it's like coming of age kind of thing you know mm -hmm. I think these these things are these are great you, so you find out what you're made of you know there's all these stories about sort of kitchens being particularly sort of tough places to work was there a lot of that I mean I think mentally and physically at the same time mm -hmm. you know um, as a commie as a sort of 18 year old 19 year old um, who'd never really said boo to a goose you know to be suddenly thrown into this environment where it's like go 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 now 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 and people throw plates at you and people hit you in the head with elastic bands and people punch you and people constantly berate you until you get it right. And you've got two choices. You can either decide that you're going to give up because this is too horrible hmm. or you can just pick up the pace and get ahead. Um, and I decided that there was nothing else for it but to to win, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and it took me, I think, three months in my first job before I realised that, you know, I was I was one of the non-quitters and, and I'd made it and I had the acceptance of my... Of my my group, and uh, and that was a great feeling. You know, I had found somewhere out with the home that I was um, that I was happy in. Yeah. yeah. So how did that develop then, Rupert, through your career as a chef to setting up Buck and Birch? I mean, it's good. I just always follow my nose, you know. Um, and I suppose, in the sense of uh, Buck and Birch, I say it's like following following the trees. You know, I decided to kind of um, I don't know when I had children. Uh, I was about what thirty two or so when my son was born um, and I'd missed the first three years of my daughter's uh, childhood um, so when my son was born I was just determined that I wasn't going to miss the first three years of his uh, so a couple of phone calls you know I got some money together and hightailed it to my my property in Thailand for a big well-earned rest because I was way overweight way stressed and probably on a on a short track to early death you know and I had nine months of really, really nice time there, just sort of bringing up the kids and um, just living day to day, getting a nice routine, getting healthy. 
Um, and it was it was really in Thailand, perversely, that the, the this idea came back to me. I found a book by uh, Richard Maybe that I'd read as a child. It was always on our shelf, and I was always skimming through it. And it's Wild Foods. It's Food for Free. Very famous book. Um, and that just uh, sparked something in me that I'd had this idea, you know, maybe when I was 12 or so, to to find out what's what's there, what's where was this hidden magic. And of course, as a chef, and you never have the time, and these ideas, these can get forgotten. And it was in Thailand, I thought, actually, I really wish I was in Scotland right now, because it's rosehip season, you know. And then we had the crash, the 2007-2008 financial crash. And I had no option but to come home. Um, and I was secretly very happy about it. Because I wanted to, I wanted to start this new exploration. I thought I'm not going to go back into hardcore chefing. I'm going to make this the sort of work of my life, if you like. And um, yeah, I was just seduced from the beginning. And and you know, one of the first things that we did was was tap birch trees. It just seemed like a magical thing. And uh, thereafter, you know, I think I was collecting jars, and there was jars and jars, and my wife was going crazy because there were ferments and jars and bubbling things and freezers full of dead things and other things. And, uh, you know, Tom, my current business partner, he he got in touch through Facebook um, and said, oh, you know, all this stuff that you're putting on Facebook, all these jars and things that you're cooking, it's uh, it looks amazing, you know. It really reminds me of growing up in in Norway. And um, he says my mother's got a got a place in Portobello. We could put a restaurant, like a just a quick pop up restaurant. And I, I was just like, I'm not doing that. That's mental. I've given up cooking. I'm done. I'm no longer. This is just purely for the interest. Um, and to cut a long story short, Tom basically took me out um, and got me drunk a couple of times. And being a chef, you know that was that was the that was the quickest way. <laughs> and uh, you know, I think that by the second or third pub, I was like, right, we'll do two, you know. And um, and really, I didn't think like a chef anymore. But we started writing down these ingredients lists of things that we had or I had, um, and then quickly realised that this was this was actually quite exciting. And the first one was it was it was a bit disappointing when I look back on it. But the twelve people we invited um, to our very hastily assembled table absolutely loved it and I think we loved it enough just to know that there was definitely something in it and I think it made me realize that without people enjoying the food there was no end process you know they they were necessary part of the of Mm -hmm. the journey Um, and it gave me a great kind of feeling that this this perhaps was the purpose and maybe we would let cooking come back a bit you know I always say that um, she's she's a crazy thing like you're just always trying to get rid of it but chefing just constantly barges its way back into your life. I think it's, I'm stuck, you know. So what, could you sort of tell us a bit about the business as it stands today? Because you do all kinds of different things, don't you? I mean, from those days in 2012, yeah, we've definitely moved on a bit. Um, we did a, occasional dinner parties, we called them. Um, we never made any money and we were proud not to make any money. But at some point your wife and kids say to you, like, it would be quite nice if you made some money <laughs> since you're working two jobs and everything. Um, and so we tried, um, we decided we weren't going to scale up the model of Buck and Birch, because the, the dinner side. So we needed a product. Um, and we went through sea buckthorn juice and thought about jam and silly things like that. But it was it was a product that we first served at our first dinner, um, that was known at the time as the purple stuff. Um, and it was an elderberry whiskey drink. And at the very first dinner, somebody had come into the kitchen, a chap called Steve, very drunk you know and he was like that purple stuff 
was unbelievable. He said, you should bottle that and sell it. And we were like, yeah, yeah, thanks, Steve. That's really, really good of you, you know. Um, and over the course of the next two years, people kept saying, you know, you should make that purple stuff and we'll buy it and it'll be great, you know. And after about two two years or so, we, we sort of went, maybe what we should do is bottle that stuff and, and, and sell it, you know. But we'd always sort of thought, well, we don't, we're not alcohol people. We're, we're these crazy wild food guys. Um, and then this odd idea came well let's get the licenses let's get the bits of paper that we need and um and we'll sell some at christmas and that's that's really when it started um but even then we we didn't think of ourselves as being in the alcohol industry we were just making a bit of extra money at christmas but pretty soon we had um you know the seller and answer that were after it and, and other restaurants you know we had the Edinburgh food studio said we'll buy your entire stock and um shivan haddington was selling it and we did a few sums and thought if we scaled this up this has got enormous potential, you know. And Tom, he's he's um he's he's a fine art student, and he's got great eye for graphics and design. And he designed a beautiful bottle. Um, and and I just remember thinking like this is this has got legs. And mm-hmm. um, and I thought to myself, this this is what's this is what if you like the the woods has led me to. It's saying you know mm-hmm. there's there's all this richness, and and this is a fantastic way of packaging it and making some money to, you know, pay for the wife and kids and everything. Um, so we were we were in the booze business and it wasn't until we came home from a, a whiskey festival in, in Dornach. You know, I said, why are they inviting us? You know, because we still thought of ourselves as these crazy wild food guys. And we're there with, you know, Glenn Morangie and all these big brands. I said, well, why are we there, you know? And it was on the return journey. I said to Thomas, it's like, we're actually in the drinks business, man. <laughs> like, that's what we're doing now. You know, we need to take this seriously. Um, and so, yeah, in 2015, we incorporated and just decided that the idea itself, you know, was was definitely, it had to get out there. And we had an obligation, I think, to to take that idea as far as we can. Mm-hmm. Um, and so far, so good. 2015, I think we incorporated as a business. Um, we had a couple of years of not getting paid, um, which was exciting. But, you know, that's par for the course. Uh, and since then, we've... We've really gone from strength to strength. Um, we've got a board now, so we've got a nice uh, executive board. We've got some lovely... We've got uh, George McIntosh's... George McIntosh is an fact, our guest on this podcast series, actually. So. Oh, was he? Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, well, he's he's our chairman, yeah, so he, he's come into it. Um, you know, we've got Brian Mackey, um, Colin McCulloch, and, uh, yeah, we've, it, it's just... It's a really great bunch of guys. I think it's very complimentary. You know, it means I can get on with talking to trees and uh, coming up with crazy new products, and I'm I'm pretty so, confident. Well, tell us, talk us through the the drinks you you currently have and some that might possibly be in the in the pipeline. Well, I mean, we've had a, a stable. We've got like a elderberry whiskey drink, elder, um, which is great. It's like a port alternative. Um, beautiful, perfect Christmas drink, really, uh, or a long summer drink. We've got. Amarosa, which is a similar equivalent made with rose hips, one of my favourite things. Um, we've got a birch syrup caramel liqueur called uh, Anna. Um, we've got a little bit of fun called um, rum and cake. And rum and cake is literally a hogweed seed parking cake infused in rum. And then literally we take all the cake back out and you're left with this buttery, cakey rum. It's absolutely delicious. Um, but the one that really excites us the most is, at the moment, birch. Uh, which is we just couldn't think of another name for it because it's literally pure alcohol watered down with pure birch sap which we're collecting today 
in Gifford and um, it's then just sort of melded back with you know the sort of buds and the the leaves the bark and some of the syrup and actually some of the fungi as well very little amount of this very bitter fungi that grows with the birch uh, to make this really elegant drink that I think is, is just testament to the tree itself um, and the model that we've built is you know we're working with people like the Gifford Community Woodlands we're working with uh, a croft in the highlands uh, and a regeneration project in in the borders to to help the people who are already on the land to really you know we're not we're not going to be reinventing the wheel or anything but we're 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 helping these people to to reform their land i think in the way the land wants to be and to put people plants and places back together and that to me is very exciting i mean the drink itself is is stunning it's uh you could think of it as a very light gin alternative or a vodka alternative, but it's, it's great on its own. Uh, it's great with a bit of tonic. I mean, the bar guys love it. It's got a lovely silky mouthfeel. So it's great in cocktails. And it's just got a great story to it. I think it's one of those, as we always say at the Buck and Perch, you know, there's so much goodness hiding in plain sight. And one of Scotland's biggest mistakes is that we just don't realize what we've got. I think it's, it's almost criminal. I mean, it certainly make us the laughing stock of many other countries. Um, and we're we're just here to say, look, you know, it's it's all there. Let's use it and and mm. use that as a vehicle to to really express ourselves. So I'm very excited about birch. I think birch has got scalability, and I think the bigger birch gets, the more mm. opportunity it has to to help these people to make. Uh, Scotland, I think, heal a little bit, you know, because the land, I think, needs a lot of healing. Um, something we always ask on the, the podcast, Rupert, is uh, if you were to give some advice to the young Rupert Waits setting off into the world, what would it be? Goodness me. Um, I don't know. I mean, I ask myself this a lot, and, and I don't think you can, but um, just go for it, basically. You know, I think a lot of people said to me throughout my chefing career, you should be off doing something incredible and... Um, I just, you know, think things are what they are. Um, but I tell my son these days, I suppose, which is the equivalent, you know, just, just think big and go for it and don't be afraid to fail. Um, and follow your heart, you know, and I always have actually, so I don't think there's anything, I don't really have any big regrets. Because um, I've always just thought if I don't want to do something, I just stop doing it. And um, if I really, really want to do something, I end up doing it. <laughs> so I think I'm pretty much where I should have been, uh, which is a great feeling. And, and it's, it's like I always say, I'm being led here in this instance by following the birch trees, you know. And it took me a while to realise that, you know, when we first tapped them, we were taking sap and we were making syrup and we were taking things. And now, 15 years later, we're talking about planting, or not planting, but, you know, creating space for, for birch trees to grow into um, and expand. The, so it's it's mm. it, there's the basis of a relationship there. And I think it's exciting. Um you know, we stopped, we, we made sure that our first dinner coincided with the coming of the sap back in 2012. It just felt right to go on that, which is, sounds crazy. It doesn't sound like the sort of thing you'd um, you'd, you'd base a business on. <laughs> but um, at the same time, it makes perfect sense. Well, it's been fantastic uh, hearing your story, Rupert. Thanks very much. No problem, yeah. Thanks to Rupert and thanks to you for listening. This is actually my last episode of the Scottish Business Network series. So thanks to everyone who's listened to any of the 90 plus episodes. 
which will remain available. And there are so many fascinating and inspirational stories within that archive. The series may continue further with the SBN, but for now I'd like to say a very big thank you to Scottish Business Network co-founders Christine Essen and Russell Dalgleish for all their support and encouragement. Thanks also to Chris Tolley, who composed and performed the wonderful intro music to the series, uh, to Jenny Dunbar, whose fantastic voice you hear in every episode and who you will hear shortly, pointing you to the SBN website, and also to Alan Lennon, who's created the, the artwork for the, the series. I've met so many interesting people over the course of these interviews and made several new friends too. It really has been a great privilege, and I think I might have a glass of birch sap to celebrate. Cheers. To find out more about the Scottish Business Network, simply visit sbn.scot.